Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. This, is then, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the, re the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, good morning, Anchor Bay. My name is Allie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Each week before the sermon, it's our practice to take a quiet moment to settle ourselves, to set aside the distractions from our morning, and to prepare ourselves to hear what God has for us. So I invite you to join me in a moment of silence. Holy God, we come before you carrying the weight of our weeks, the anxieties of work, the stresses of family life, the grief of news so dark our souls can't bear it. God, as we enter into this time to learn from your word, help us to trust that you do hear the groans of our spirit that you have won the victory over sin and death and shame, that you are with us. And so God, help us prepare our hearts and our minds to learn from your word what you have for us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, it is finally feeling like fall, and you know what that means. It's election season. (laughs) Thought I was going to go pumpkin spice, didn't you? Races are in full swing. Yard signs for the different candidates are out. Debates and forums are happening, and someone might be waving to you on your way to work. All of this means it's also the season of the spin doctor. The term spin doctors was originated in a New York Times editorial about the presidential debate in 1984 between Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. An unsighted author wrote, seconds after the Reagan-Mondale debate ends, a bazaar will suddenly materialize in the press room. A dozen men in good suits and women in silk dresses will circulate smoothly among the reporters, spouting confident opinions. They won't just be press agents trying to impart a favorable spin to a routine release. They'll be the spin doctors, senior advisors to the candidates. These spin doctors are some of the big brains behind a candidate's race, and they have to think quickly. Right after the event, they have to be ready with their own portrayal of what happened. It doesn't matter if their candidate completely bumbled their way through a debate or a speech. It's the spin doctor's job to present a version of what happened that makes their candidate look successful. Spin doctors will, of course, highlight what their candidate did well. Maybe they'll also ignore or try and explain away what their candidate didn't do so great. But they'll often point out where the opponent blundered and I'll try to make them look bad. 
At the end of the day, they will present whatever version of events makes their candidate look better than the other. They are trying to win, to set their candidate over and against the other. Now, I have no education in political science or any experience in either local or national politics, but I'd have to say I'm a bit of a spin doctor myself. And you probably are too. The only difference is that we're not working for a candidate, but for ourselves. Sometimes it's just a quick judgment to boost our own ego, a glance around the room, and a thought that, yeah, I'm totally more successful, or more smart, or more compassionate, or prettier than that other person. Well done, me. Other times, it might be a more complex argument with supporting evidence crafted in the shower about how you're definitely on the right side of that political, theological, or personal argument, and the person that irks you totally isn't. Our spin doctor ways might show up in the way that we try to impress our bosses, to win over a new friend, or when we're trying to gain the support of potential new in-laws. We start to do our own spinning, when we want to be highly regarded, when we want to be right, when we want to appear successful, when we want to be considered better than them. This morning, we're continuing the sermon series we're calling Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. And in our passage that Tina read for us this morning, the Apostle Paul is pretty fed up with the way that the church in Corinth has been putting their spin on reality to present themselves as more successful and spiritually mature than each other. I invite you to turn in your own Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we dig into what's going on here. Now, this passage is one of those passages that makes me think, I'm so glad this wasn't written directly to me. Because Paul is not holding back any punches. He is both very direct and sarcastic, and he is not afraid of ruffling feathers. You know it's going to be a good one when Paul prepares them for the message by saying, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is setting up this next section by basically saying, go ahead and be mad. Doesn't bother me. Listen, Paul, he's just doing his job. And he's confident knowing that it's only God who gets to decide whether or not he did that job well and with the right intentions. It's important for us to remember as as we read the Corinthian letters that while Paul often does address them with really harsh words, He does so out of love for the church in Corinth. The Corinthians have been acting terribly, and their behavior needs to be called out and addressed. Even still, Paul sees them as saints. He places that acknowledgement right at the beginning of the letter, before he ever gets into what they have done wrong. Paul calls them holy and set apart. And yet... Here we have some more tough love for them. And he returns back to his discussion of the division that's happening within the church. 
Verse 6 reads, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? In the previous chapters, we learned that the church in Corinth was divided because people were caught up in jealousy. They're bragging and fighting about the leaders that they were following. In chapter 3, Paul zeroes in on the immaturity of these believers by using he and Apollos as stand-ins for the leaders that they were bickering about. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So Paul here is once again referencing the divide that he's seeing. And this is where we learn how the spin doctors of Corinth were spinning their circumstances. The church in Corinth was going beyond what is written by making claims that weren't supported in Scripture. First, they were claiming that they had the ability to judge human leaders. Paul's already addressed that. And next, he says, they were pointing to the presence of spiritual gifts as a status marker and a sign of spiritual maturity. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brynn taught us about the race for honors in the culture of Corinth. Everything about life in the society of Corinth was about getting more status, more power, and more recognition. Honor was what gave a person value and worth in their culture. And because it was a race, someone finished in first place with the most amount of honor, and someone finished in last place with the least amount of honor. And everyone was in it to win it. The church in Corinth was still steeped in this mentality, so much so that they began applying it to the workings of the church. And they were clamoring over one another, trying to have the most amount of honor. So they were doing things like pointing to the spiritual gift of teaching or of speaking and saying this is a sign that they were more spiritually mature and more worthy of honor than others. Of course, this is not true. This is their spun version of events to make sure that they come out on top. What is true is that God gives spiritual gifts however he pleases, to the spiritually mature and to the spiritually immature. And what is true is that God, again and again, doesn't use the successful person with power in their lives together, but the messy people at the bottom of society. Remember, we see Jesus going out and talking to the lepers and the tax collectors. He's going to the people at the bottom. God doesn't give gifts or use people based on their own merit. And so Paul points out this inconsistency to them by saying, what do you have that you didn't receive? You didn't earn this, people. This is all a gift. Stop acting like it's a reward. You're not mature at all. This is divisive arrogance. 
a way to continue the race for honors where some in the church have status and honor and some do not. Now, we may not be in the race for honors, but divisive arrogance is still a huge problem in the church. It can start pretty innocently. Maybe you just happen to really love a ministry here at Anchor Bay. But when we start comparing and spinning, it can become the measure of success that you compare other faith communities to. My church does this thing I like. Your church does not. Or maybe the opposite. Your church does that? My church would never do that. The truth is, we, just like the Corinthians, are tempted by a worldly measure of success and by comparison. And to get the Corinthians to see just how off course they have gotten, Paul compares their lives with the lives of the apostles. As a refresher, the apostle is what we call the 11 living disciples after they are set out by Jesus to go and teach others what Jesus had taught them. Paul was added to the bunch later when he had his own encounter with Jesus, who was calling him to the role. Essentially, they're the first leaders in the church, and they were picked by Jesus. So Paul makes this comparison, dripping with sarcasm, between the lives of the Corinthians and the lives of the apostles. Verse 8 reads, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Paul's like, look at all you have. Everything you could want. Money, power, and all on your own. So great for you. Except that's not really how God's kingdom works. So you don't actually have power really is too bad because it would have been nice. Instead of enjoying how great all of that, that all might have been, Paul paints the picture of the life of the apostle at the end of a Roman procession. Romans loved a parade in a procession. And the race for honor a procession through town was a great way to let everyone know that their leader had a tight grip on the top honor spot. Behind all the shiny people and their chariots and soldiers and their uniforms would be the prisoners and the captives being brought to the place where they were going to be executed. This is the position that Paul says the apostles had in society. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't saying that the Corinthians have to live this position They don't need to live some kind of aesthetic lifestyle, abandoning every comfort and suffering in the way that Paul did. Instead, Paul makes it clear that God has called the apostles and the Corinthian church to be a living picture of the Christ that they follow. Because before Paul was like a captive set to die at the end of a procession, Jesus actually was a captive at the end of a procession set to die. And so Paul is saying that the suffering of the apostles is the very specific way that the apostles are called to be like Christ in the world. They are called to remind everyone of the significance of Christ's suffering. 
And to do so, to live that out, to live out that calling with faithfulness to Jesus, that, that is success to Paul. This may seem strange if the idea is to grow a church, to start it from the bottom up, why make your first set of leaders suffer? Why make them appear lowly? Wouldn't you want a strong leader? This is yet another example of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. God operates with the opposite expectations of the world so that we cannot rationalize away the work of God. The apostles are lowly and suffering, and yet they are effective leaders and teachers because of what God is doing. Everything that the Corinthians have been after to appear the perfect picture of success, the apostles have had the opposite. The Corinthians want to seem wise, strong, and honored. The apostles look like fools for Christ, weak and dishonored. The Corinthians want to appear wealthy and powerful. The apostles go hungry and are treated poorly. And yet, in all of the ways that they are treated, they do not try to fight their way back up to the top. And this, to the Corinthians, would, have, would seem pretty strange. In traditional Mediterranean culture, retaliation is considered one of the signs of a self-respecting person. It's seen as a good thing. The highest virtue, according to Aristotle, is great-heartedness. And great-heartedness is a willingness to take action for noble causes, a willingness to face danger, a refusal to be petty. But another part of being great-hearted is an unwillingness to endure insult. To receive insult, persecution, or curses, and return them with gentleness and kindness was radically countercultural. So why is Paul so adamant about showing the Corinthians that the apostles are at the bottom of society and staying there? If he isn't necessarily prescribing that all Christians become, as he says, the scum of the earth. Well, the apostles were the ones with the most authority in the church. Within the church, they would have had power, authority, and maybe some honor. And yet in the culture around them, because they were faithfully following Christ, they were at the bottom of society. Paul is trying to demonstrate to the church that their status is secure in Christ. Their belonging is in Christ. They do not have to, and they should not, keep up with the race for honor. They don't have to keep spinning their narratives and putting others down so that they can climb up. Look how the apostles do it. But that doesn't mean that success in the kingdom of God is going to look the way it does in the world. But like the apostles, our lives are always supposed to reflect the person and the truth that we proclaim. Our lives are supposed to look like Jesus. In order for our lives to portray Christ, we need to let go of the need for our lives to look like our culture's picture of success. We need to let go of the comparison, the pride, the arrogance, the spinning. We need to let go of the things that point us towards division, that need to be right or better than. 
And this is really hard. And Paul knows that it's hard. After all this sarcastic and blunt Paul, we also get a little bit of sweet Paul too. To the saints of the image-focused church, he makes it clear that he does not write to shame them. But he writes out of affection and love for them. Paul knows that living a Christ-like life in a world that does not value the things that Christ values is really hard. His solution for them, his suggestion is to start by living like Paul as Paul lives like Christ. I'm sure many of you guys remember like 20 years ago, so many of us had a little bracelet reminding you to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? It's the question that's supposed to help us figure out how to live our lives more like Jesus. It's not necessarily a bad question, but sometimes what we're struggling with when we're not sure how to act, that situation is so far removed from the historical context of the Gospels that it's easier to live like someone in our day and age. It can be really hard to take biblical truths and figure out how to apply them correctly in everyday life. And so Paul says, I still live in this honor-shame culture that you are struggling with. I'm choosing faithfulness. I'm choosing to follow Jesus, and you can look at my life and the ways that I'm doing things to see how it might look for you to do the same. The Corinthians were chasing after their culture's version of success, a version that had them spinning narratives to elevate themselves and put others down. This is not what Christ looks like. This is not faithfulness. And so to Paul, this is not real success. And so he urges the Corinthians, set aside your need for honor and worldly success and follow Paul in following Christ. So what do we do? If like the Corinthians, we find ourselves presenting an image of success rather than presenting the image of Christ. How do we shake off our worldly version of success and learn to portray a life that looks more like Jesus? Well, first and foremost, we need to know the person that we are trying to look like. If we are going to look like Jesus, we've got to know who he is and what he stands for. And the best way to get acquainted or reacquainted with Jesus is to read scripture. We have four books in the Bible that we call the Gospels that are accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Any of those four books would be an amazing place to start. Pay attention to the way that Jesus talks and speaks to, to people. Pay attention to his direct instructions. Try to figure out what is it that Jesus cares about. Read each section and ask yourself, what matters to Jesus? Each time we read and reread the Gospels, we learn a little bit more about who our Savior is. And we remind ourselves of what we have already learned about him. Learning about Jesus is the first step to following him well and to looking more like him. Along with Scripture, we also have each other. Paul said to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow Christ. Well, we don't have Paul with us. 
But in Christian community, we can seek to learn from the examples of those who are spiritually mature. We can seek out their guidance. We can ask questions and have conversations with people who are also trying to follow Jesus, people who might understand our context or who have gone through what we are going through. When we're having an honest conversations with one another, when we can learn both from where our fellow saints have got it right and where they may admit they got it wrong. And now we know that by trying to follow the example of other mature Christians, we may still get it wrong. We are, after all, looking to imperfect people to help us find our way. But if we are really engaging in Christian community, if we are wholeheartedly trying to follow Jesus together, we can help one another look more like Jesus. Lastly, we need to remind ourselves often of the security that we have in Jesus. We all have different markers of success. Maybe for you, it's marriage, owning property. Maybe it's making the dean's list or the honor roll. Maybe it's being promoted or being able to retire. Maybe it's getting compliments on your appearance or words of affirmation from a loved one. Whatever your marker of success is, we can be tempted to race after that vision of success without any regard to looking like Jesus, if that is where we place our value and security. Now, I have a pretty strong tendency towards people-pleasing. Whatever I'm endeavoring to do, whether it be sermon writing or cooking a meal, this silly little brain of mine counts it as a success if someone else tells me that I did well, which means no comments at all, not ideal. A critique, or even worse, letting someone down with my work, I want the earth to swallow me whole. I feel like a worthless failure. And avoiding that feeling of being a worthless failure has definitely driven me towards behavior that doesn't reflect Christ. If I'm afraid of disappointing, the temptation to cover up my mistakes with dishonesty or to play the blame game to minimize my role in the failure, I told you I was a pretty good spin doctor, those temptations can become really strong. One of the things I love about our culture here at Anchor Bay that has been particularly helpful for me and my people-pleasing is a pattern of reminding one another that we are valuable and loved, not by what we can produce or accomplish, but because Jesus loves us. In fact, I know that once I submit the questions for life groups this week, there will be an automated email in my inbox from Pastor Bryn, reminding me that my worth has nothing to do with what I have done, will do, or am able to do. An automated email may not be your chosen method of reminding you the truth of the gospel, but we need to hear it often. So allow me to remind you right now. Out of his love for us, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us and rose from the grave victorious over the power of sin and shame and death. Because of what Jesus has done, we can enjoy a loving relationship with our God forever. Because of what Jesus has done, 
When we claim Jesus as our Savior, our identity is forever beloved child of God. This is all because Jesus loves you. Because of Jesus' love, your value and identity as part of God's own family is secure. There is nothing that you could have done to earn the love of Jesus. And there is nothing that you can do to lose it. You are loved. You are secure. So church, let's hold tight to that promise. And let go of the old definitions of success that we have clung to. Because when we do, we can better follow Jesus. And we can show others with our lives how amazing he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word to reorient our vision of success away from striving and competition towards faithfulness, towards seeking after you. God, thank you that our security and our worth lies not in what we can do, but in who you say that we are. Help us to remember this as we continue in our weeks surrounded by a world that tells us the opposite. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.